reminded of our theme here recently, if, uh, about a month ago, I went on a trip, and I was excited for the trip, it was going to be about an eight-day trip where I was going to be jumping in with the group doing some mission work in uh, northwest of the states, and so I was excited about that, the only one problem is I don't own a suitcase, I just have one uh, duffel bag, and so it's never been an issue in my life because I don't really go anywhere where, where one duffel bag isn't really good enough for me, right? My biggest trip each year is uh, church camp, and... I don't really need much for that, just lots of extra socks and t-shirts, right? And so I can really pack that in in a duffel bag, and I'm never, never an issue there. So this trip, though, uh, I, was, I was in a bit of an issue. I had a bit of a problem here because I brought all my clothes out that I know I needed to bring. I knew that part of the trip we were going to do uh, some painting, so I needed some clothes. I could do a lot of outside work in, a lot of kind of uh, brush removal, painting, a lot of kind of work like that. I knew that a few times we were going to be worshiping with uh, different congregations, so I need some nice clothes as well. Um, we were going to do some stuff in the community, and so I had to look presentable there as well. Uh, but not dress clothes, but commute, you know, just like outside nice clothes. And then the last day we were going to do some hiking, and so I had to bring some stuff about that. So I brought all these clothes, all the jackets I've got out, you know, because some of the, the trip was going to be like 30 degrees, so I bring it all out, and I bring my senior year basketball duffel bag out. And, and the theme of less was definitely on my mind that day. Because as I had to kind of whittle down, okay, and I don't need that many layers, maybe I just need to go buy an actual thick jacket for once, you know, and just make that fit in there. Ended up just packing a little bit of my backpack, and I wore a couple layers on the airplane. Made it work, right? This is our fourth uh, lesson in our less, uh, our less series this year. And I was reminded about this series because of this kind of packing uh, issue I had. Because sometimes that's... That's the issue we have in life, and that's why we had this series picked out in the first place. Because we have so much that we want to fit into our life. We've got so, we get so caught up in all the big things we've got going on, the priorities we have, and all the things that we feel like we have to have, the things that we need, and we don't have room for other stuff. We as a congregation have challenged ourselves this year with a theme of more. We felt like we were really achieving some great things in the year of 2021, but that there was more to be done. There were more blessings to receive from God and more good work to be done from us as a congregation. But we realized that throughout this year that in order to do more, sometimes you have to have less of other things. Sometimes you've got to lay it all out and say, okay, in order for me to make this trip, in order for me to get this job done or whatever it may be, I may have to kind of save some weight there. I may not, have to be, I may not be able to, to kind of hold on to this anymore. And so we've engaged in this series of things that God hates from Proverbs chapter 6, which I'm about to read in a moment. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open it up to there. This series was started back about just over a month ago when Ben opened it up, and it really kind of invited us to kind of get on board with this idea, this thought that we need to hate the things that God hates, right? And what an interesting thought that is. When we think about God, obviously one of the first adjectives, one of the first things about him that probably come to your mind is love. He is the God of love, and he can be called the God that he is love himself. And so it's, a, it's kind of a, a flip of the coin. We think, okay, then what is it that God hates? And if there are things that God hates, then what are my, what are my feelings on that, right? If this God, the creator of all universes, judge at the end of time, if there are certain things that he loathes, that he cannot handle, he hates, when I'm presented with those very same things in my life, how do I handle those situations? How do I handle those actions, those mindsets? And if those don't line up, then maybe it's not an issue with him, but more so it's an issue with, with me. And then Kyle took us away with that first comment, 
in Proverbs chapter six, uh, Proverbs chapter six, starting in verse sixteen, the comment about haughty eyes. As I slowly flip there, excuse me. Proverbs chapter six, starting in verse sixteen. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Kyle had the first one of haughty eyes, and then there's a lying tongue. A hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, and a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. A couple weeks ago, or a week before our focus Sunday last week, Mingu brought us an excellent lesson on an overview of two of these things that we saw kind of go together. You can look back in verse 16, this idea, uh, or verse 17, this idea of a lying tongue, and then one in verse 19 a false witness who utters lies. And so we've had two lessons, Ben kind of starting us off this series about what this is about, and then Kyle talking about Hadi Oz and Mingyu doing a two-for-one deal of, of lies and false witness. And so tonight I have the privilege of having this very encouraging lesson kind of in my lap of speaking about hands that shed innocent blood. God hates. This is an abomination to him. Hands that shed innocent blood. Now the shedding of innocent blood can happen in a lot of different ways, and so I want to kind of walk through that before we get into more of what we're going to be talking about this evening. But the idea of hands that shed innocent blood, we can kind of see that and kind of play out in a very physical way in a few different situations. When alcohol is involved, when poor decisions are made and people get behind cars or is something like that or any situation around that, when any substance is involved where, where decisions are impaired, innocent blood can be, shed, can be shed at those moments, right? Or when rage or anger or jealousy or any evil intent of a man's heart is involved, they can spill out innocent blood, people can be hurt, or in extreme situations, people can be killed. And so innocent blood can be shed. Or maybe one of the most obvious things when looking at this passage, and definitely the most historical use of this, of this one phrase in a cultural context, hands that shed innocent blood can also be attached to this idea of the act of abortion. Tonight we're not going to spend almost any of our time speaking about drunk driving or actions made in rage or, the, or abortion itself. And not that God's Word doesn't talk plenty more about that. We can look to several passages tonight considering just that last option of abortion and what it means that hands that shed innocent blood. There are several passages from Old to New Testament that show God's extreme involvement and handiwork in the life, in the formation of life in the womb. We can look to Luke chapter 1 and the terminology used to, to Mary and Elizabeth meeting for the first time after both being pregnant where Jesus and John, still in the womb, leap at them being close near to each other. And the terminology used for the baby in the womb, and then just a mere chapters later, the baby outside the womb. Now it's the same terminology used. God recognized, and we could spend the rest of tonight, and we could have a, a class on why it's wrong, how it's wrong, and where God's Word says it's wrong at. But I believe that we're all on the same page about that for the most part tonight. I feel like the, the, the audience that I have on a Sunday evening, maybe this is wrong of me, but I don't want to spend 30 to 40 minutes talking about that one issue of how abortion is wrong. Would it be just? Absolutely. 
Is there enough cause in this nation to be talking about it? Absolutely. But I don't feel like my audience tonight is the one I need to spend my time convincing that where, what God's Word has to say about that. But before I move on, I do want to say this, because I don't know who's in this audience. I don't know who's watching online. I definitely don't know who may be tuning in in the future and, look, and listening back to this lesson. If you do fall into that crowd, or maybe, you've had, maybe you, you have made past decisions where innocent blood was shed. Maybe it was a, a driving accident that was more your fault. Maybe it was an action by your own hands based on your own ill intent. Or maybe based on a lot of different reasons you decided to have an abortion at some point in your past. What I want to say to you tonight and if you don't take anything else, I hope this is it, is that God definitely still loves you. And that that accident, that incident, that decision that you made does not mean that God's love is not strong enough and not mighty enough to overcome that. And that this congregation here at Buford isn't good enough to accept you and to love you when those decisions are recognized and repented from. Don't get caught up in, in the world that maybe uh, plotting those decisions or overlooking or downplaying those decisions you've made in your past. But also don't get caught up in this kind of ill-intented uh, Christian... No, um, let me just read my... You know, sometimes you write things out so you don't mess it up. Let me just say it, read it like I said it. Don't let the world applaud you for your actions nor tell you that it's no big deal. But also don't let misguided Christians... Christian notions that you can't be loved and forgiven keep you held down. Those that have shed innocent blood, when they come in contact with the blood of Christ, can be forgiven, find hope, and comfort. And those that truly repent of those, these actions can certainly find grace in the eyes of God. And so having said that, what I want to do with this topic tonight, hands that shed innocent blood, is I want to kind of look at it in a different light and one that could apply to all of us in this room tonight, all of us listening now or in the future at any point. Not overlooking those that maybe this directly applies to in a very physical sense, not downplaying that this passage could be used to, to show that in a lot of different ways, but also for a practical reason to look at how this, pa how this passage can challenge us, all of us, in this room this evening. If you've got your Bibles, open up to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll kind of step back through, look at the context, and kind of walk back through this passage with each other. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Verse 3. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman, caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in, this very, in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And when they were saying this, testing him, so they may have ground for accusing him. But Jesus stood down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where, where are they? 
Did no one condemn you? And she replied, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. What an amazing passage that we have. Almost, if you just take it just at the surface level, it's an amazing passage where Christ is in this moment of teaching in the temple, in the court of the temple, and a mob brings a woman in ready, maybe possibly stones in their hand, ready to condemn and execute her at that moment. And just a few moments later, the mob is gone. The woman is walking away freely, having not only not been killed, but having a new lease on life. So let's kind of step down into the context, into the, the exact narrative of what's happening here. Maybe we can take just a little bit more out of what's going on. Look back to Luke chapter 7 and verse 44. When I talk to the, the students in the BYG about how important and how good Bible study is and what that looks like, it, the, one of the biggest things I talk about is location, 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 right? When you're buying a house, one of the first things you want to look at is, okay, where, it's, where is it? What's the neighborhood like? What street is it on? What part of the city is it in, right? And when you go to God's Word and we're looking at a certain narrative or certain context, one of the biggest things, the best things we can do is, okay, location, location, location. And that's going to help us kind of pull just that much more out of this passage. Look to Luke chapter 7, verse 44. Some of them wanted to seize him, Christ, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and the Pharisees said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way that this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is a curse. Now Nicodemus, verse 50, who came down to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from them, and knows what he is to do, what he is doing, does it? And they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no, no one prophet arises out of Galilee. What we've got in John chapter 8 is a culminating point of this tension rise between the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus himself. This is a moment where these two parties have been kind of getting on to each other, where Christ has been teaching, the scribes and Pharisees have gotten to a point where they're ready to throw him in prison. They were ready to go ahead and make this, start these actions, get the ball rolling, and eradicating this rebel named Christ. And so they go to these officers, they get some of the Roman officers together and say, okay, you need to go and watch this rebel, you need to go to him, and you need to watch him and see what he does to stir up the crowds. And kind of comically, the officers go and they come back and go, we really didn't see anything wrong with the guy. He wasn't as nearly as bad as you were telling us. He didn't really do anything. He made, actually made a little sense, right? And so the scribes and Pharisees, they kind of roll their eyes. You, you know, you've got to be kidding me. Now you believe them as well. No one who actually knows the law believes in them. We don't believe in them. Only this accursed crowd. And so the day ends. Christ goes in chapter 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He rested, which is what, his accustomed, what, what, which is what he does while staying in Jerusalem. He goes and sleeps. He wakes up the next morning and walks back into Jerusalem, goes into the temple in verse 2. And starts teaching again. This is a normal day for Christ. This is what he's been doing for some days now. And the scribes and Pharisees have had enough with it. And now they're not sending officers to go and check this out. They themselves have devised a plan to entrap Jesus where he stands. If they can't get the officers to arrest them, then they're going to get their own hands dirty and they're going to step in. 
And they're going to do this again later on in Matthew chapter 25 about paying taxes to Caesar. But this is their first attempt in trying to trap Jesus in a way that he would really kind of entrap himself here and be thrown in prison. And so kind of just put yourself in what is happening in this context. This is just after maybe mid-morning at the temple, right? The sun is still rising maybe just over the temple walls at this moment. Christ has a, a sizable crowd, maybe a crowd like this, that has come and gathered for maybe the second or the third day in a row to listen to him. Jesus is standing, or, or in that custom probably sitting, people standing around him. But he is the center of attention, and a large crowd is gathered around his feet. And all of a sudden, a bustling crowd break through the temple gate, dragging a woman. And they're yelling and they're jeering. And they bust up this very peaceful scene of Christ sitting down and teaching these people. They sit her in the middle of the court. You have the idea that they kind of back everybody else up. They kind of back everybody else up. Jesus is still possibly sitting down at this moment. They back everybody else out of the way. They bring, they bring the woman who's called in adultery and stand her right in the middle. Obviously disheveled, probably weeping at this moment, knowing what's happening. And they begin to accuse her. Teacher, this woman, verse 4, has been caught in adultery in the very act. And that's a big deal. In Jewish law, there was a right to execute uh, someone who was caught in adultery, but only if at least two people had caught them in the act. That's why in Jewish law, execution of this way really never ever happened because adultery is a pretty private thing. And so not, not very often are two people walking in and discovering that, ha that act happening. And so there's never enough witnesses, not just the husband or not just the wife walking in. There was never enough witnesses to corroborate exactly what happened. But now this whole crowd comes in and say, okay, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. At that moment right there, some alarms are going off, probably in the whole crowd's eyes. Oh, okay, we know where this is going. We have the idea of what they're about to ask him. Verse 5, now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Now, if we don't put ourselves into the context, if we don't put ourselves into the moment right now, we may not see the weighty matter here, why this was a genius question on them that Christ, even more brilliant, just maneuvers right through. But a pretty brilliant question on their part to try to entrap Jesus in this moment. Because this is classically pretty much a lose-lose situation for Jesus at this time. This woman, according to them, has been caught in adultery. There's more than two witnesses. So to the law of Moses, the one that Christ has been talking about and expanding upon, according to that law, she is ready to be executed right then and there. So if he says, no, don't execute her, then what does, it, what does that make he? What does that make him? It makes him now abolishing the law of Moses. He's now standing in exact opposition to the law that he's been expounding upon and teaching on and fulfilling in their very midst. So if he says, no, don't execute them, and then right there at that moment, all the Jews, and these are all Jews because we know they're in the temple, they're in the court, all the Jews, they, okay, we don't want to listen to this guy anymore. And so he can't say, no, 
don't execute her because that would go against the law. But he also can't say, yes, you can execute her because that would go against Roman law. At this point in the life of, of, the, of the Jewish world at this moment, Rome is the conquering force. Rome is the, the force around them. And they had taken that right away from them. We've all, you've probably heard this before. But at this moment in the Jewish world, the Jews themselves had no right to kill someone. That's why later on when Christ is put on trial, he's sent off to the Romans because they themselves don't have the right to carry out the execution. That's now with the state. No longer on the cultural, national level do they have that ability. So they've got to send them to the Romans. And so if he says, you know what, yes, according to the law of Moses, you can't execute her, so because of that, you can go ahead and do that, then right then and there, he has just broken the Roman law, and they can throw him in prison. And so how does Jesus handle this extremely intense situation, possibly hundreds of people around him, his ministry maybe hanging on the balance, because if he says yes, he isolates this group. If he says no, he isolates that group. How does he handle it? I'm sure the last time in that temple court there was a silent moment is maybe when they first brought the woman in and said, we've caught her in the very act. Can you imagine the gasp? Can you imagine the silence there for maybe a split moment? And the next moment of silence that we get is after they, 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 they ask that question, what then would you do with her? Christ bends down, he stoops down, New American would say, and starts rotting in the dirt. Now we're not going to spend much time talking about what he wrote because we have no idea, right? A lot of people like to speculate, a lot of Jewish tradition like this to think that they were, he was writing down the names of the accusers. He was writing down the sins of the, all the people in that room. Some people like to think that as Roman uh, custom was at that moment, before you said a, uh, a statement in a, in a courtroom, you had to write it down first. And so a lot of people like to think, well, Christ was writing down what he was about to say. We have no idea what he was writing the point is that he took time to stop, to stoop down, and he wrote for a moment. When they heard it, or excuse me, but when they were, verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, think about that, he's been writing for maybe a minute, two minutes, which doesn't seem like a long time unless you're waiting for someone to answer a minute, it seems like, a for, for like forever, right? And they keep asking, what then do you want us to do with her? What would you do? Would you want us to execute her? Do you not? And you can imagine as a group of men are all yelling these things out, possibly now, he finally stands up, he straightens up, looks at them eye to eye, and he has one of the most profound one-liners of all his ministry, right? He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stoops back down and continues writing. I wonder what that silence was like. I wonder what the men did when they heard that. Some people like to think that when Christ said, let he who is without sin, well, some people like to think, some scholars think, that the sin that he's talking about is not just in general any sin at all, but the sin that's been committed that day. That possibly Christ is already calling this group out for committing sin by orchestrating this whole circus in the first place. Some people like to think that in this, this was all orchestrated to entrap Jesus, that this woman was thrown into this situation, that those that, that witnessed this very act were, were already there in the first place, and that all of this is one big sham of a trial, one big sham of a sin, and that these men are more guilty of sin than the woman standing in front of them. And so he says, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. 
regardless if, that, if it's that or if it's sin in general, they get the point because one by one, starting with the oldest, whether that's because of wisdom or authority, starting with the oldest, they start walking out. They start filing out. Imagine if you were in the audience that day, you've been sitting at the feet of Christ, you've been listening to him for maybe a half hour, maybe an hour at this point, and this whole thing happens right in front of you. You're standing off to the sign, Jesus is over here, you've got a lady standing that's almost ready to be executed, and a crowd that's jeering at her, and jeering and yelling at Christ. And then one at a time, they just walk out the back, the same door they walked in from. And now all of a sudden, it's just Jesus and the woman standing there, Maybe you were, just about, you were just listening earlier. Jesus there and the lady still standing possibly. Christ stands back up. Woman, where did everybody go? Where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now, from now on, sin no more. We've got this beautiful image of this conversation that this woman in Christ gets to have in a public setting here, which would have been unique at this time to have a woman speak, and especially in this context of being in the court at that moment, in the temple's presence. And he asks her directly a question. He stands up and meets her eyes, just like he stood up and met the eyes of the accusers. And he goes, where did they go? I guess no one was able to condemn you, were they? And she answers and goes, well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And that last part's going to be important towards the end of this conversation tonight. But in a moment when the whole crowd was ready to end this lady's life, Christ said, you've got a lot more to live, live for. There are three different groups in this situation. Maybe you're wondering, Jay, how does this apply to Proverbs chapter 6 and hands that shed innocent blood? By any means, this lady is not innocent, right? Unless this was all one big lie, and that's not the context that we have. Unless this was all one big lie, maybe she is, but in this, in this story, she isn't innocent. So how does this apply to the less theme of what God hates, and how does this apply to shedding innocent blood? Since there's no innocent blood being shed here in this passage, right? Let's break it down and see what we have here. You have... Christ, able to forgive sins. You've got a woman that was caught in sin and a group that's ready to condemn her because of that. A group that's already looking down and already devaluing her to a point where they don't want her to live anymore. And I wonder how many of us in, in, in this room tonight, I, I don't think a lot of us maybe have caused the shedding of innocent blood in, in a physical way. But I wonder how many of us tonight would find ourselves with a stone in our hand, just like the crowd in John chapter 8. When we've come face to face with someone caught in sin, when we have to interact with someone that's very much caught, in, caught up in the world with their decisions, with their lifestyle, whatever it may be, I wonder how many times we've been caught devaluing them as a person. How many times we've been caught with a, a, with a stone or a comment in our mind ready to strike out and to lash out because, well, they're living in sin. Well, maybe if just one conversation with Christ, they'd be ready to be innocent. This woman had one comment to Christ. They had two, they had two sentences. That was it. There was a question, an answer, and a statement. And that was the whole conversation. And she gets to walk away from the situation, being forgiven for her sins and challenged to sin no longer. That's how close she was, be, she was to being innocent. What, has she been in sin? Yes. 
After one conversation with Jesus, now she's innocent. And I wonder how many times I've been guilty of condemning someone and looking down at someone because they didn't live a lifestyle that was modeled after the Bible. I I looked down at someone and made a comment or gossip about someone because they, in the present situation they were in at that moment, didn't reflect God's glory. Instead of maybe reaching out, instead of talking to them, showing support, showing love, showing interest in who they are as a person. I wonder how many times I've been innocent and you've been, or I've been guilty or you've been guilty of being prepared to shed blood that was just one conversation away from being innocent. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter 5. You say, Jay, I've not been ready to shed innocent blood. Maybe I see someone who I don't like. Maybe I see someone that's caught up in sin, but I'm not ready to kill them, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Christ would speak directly to this when he says, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Christ would say, you know what, maybe you haven't been ready to commit murder. But if you've harbored hate in your heart, if you have devalued someone based on your mindset, your tone of voice, whatever it may be, then you're just as guilty of harboring that level of hatred for someone than someone who did commit murder. It's an interesting word found in Matthew chapter 25. It's the only time you use in all, the whole New Testament, all the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, this phrase of you good for nothing. In your translations, you may have a lot of different thoughts there because this is a, a nearly impossible word to translate. It's an Aramaic word, raka, that means it's more, it's more of just a saying. It's more of just an idea that looking down with contempt and so it is a good way of saying you good for nothing, right? But more the idea is, it's simply just the act, not just the phraseology, just the, not just the phrase, but the act of saying, you know what? You don't mean anything. When I look at you, when I speak to you, when I talk about you, I see you as a good for nothing. And when we have that mindset about other people made in the image of God, and we've shed blood. Maybe that's not instant at that moment, but we've shed blood that's maybe just one conversation away from being innocent. How much maybe worse is that? To hurt someone, to look down at someone, to strike out with our comments, who possibly needs Christ, who possibly needs the love of God more than anyone else in this room, Right? Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 18, the, the, the group in Jerusalem, are, they don't like Jeremiah. Jeremiah's been a prophet for God, and he's been telling them how much they've been wrong, right? Nothing's changed. People don't like hearing that. And so they say, you know what? Let's strike out and hurt him with our tongue. It's a common biblical phrase, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to inflict physical pain almost with the words coming out of my mouth, right? How many times... Have we shed blood that's ready to be made innocent by hurtful comments, angry mindsets, rude tones of voices to people who are living caught in sin, caught up in this world? 
How many, time do we, how many times do we see people in the LGBTQ plus community and we just came and looked their way? How many times have we met with people in that community and maybe the first notion we have is contempt or disgust or disdain and instead of a heart that's longing for, for love, to, to, for true love to be in their life and for them to come to the recognition that God is still caring for them. I'll never forget my sophomore year at college, we had a, a, a student, he uh, was really well respected all across campus, he's a great, gentleman, great guy. He was asked to speak in chapel one day, which is a huge ordeal. You know, not every guy gets that opportunity. And he taught, he, he taught chapel and did a great job. And at the end of chapel, he confessed that earlier in his life that he had really dealt with same-sex attraction. That that was a temptation in his life that no, though he had never acted on, was very real, persistent, and extremely difficult for him to overcome. He said, I was ready to leave the church my senior year. No one knew I was hurting. No one knew I was going through this. And I had, led a, I had finally led a few friends in. Two of, my friends that he had, two of his friends that he had grown up with in the church said, you're dead to me. But one of them continued relationship. How many times have we seen people in that community and not been able to have a conversation Maybe we're not ready to shed, shed blood, but we're ready to make a comment. We pick up that stone, we're ready to hurl it at him with that gossip, with that comment here, with that thought there. How many times have we met someone, a lady who has, had had, who has made the decision to have an abortion previous in her life? And instantly, that moment, without even thinking about, changed all of our thoughts and views on that person. How many of us have seen people who because of just where they're at in their life, maybe their economic status or their decisions that have led them down, whatever it may be, addictions they've had or are currently having this moment, without even thinking about it, our, our thoughts and, our, and our, our image of them in our mind changes and we're ready to talk and we're ready to, to maybe not have that conversation with them, maybe not ready to, to stop and talk to them in line or whatever it may be. When again, he need the love of Christ at that moment, maybe more than anybody else. How many of us recognize people who aren't in these pews tonight? How many of us saw people come Easter Sunday? Was that, was that last Sunday? Two Sundays ago? Yeah. Was it last Sunday? When was Easter, congregation? Two weeks ago, thank you. I'm used to the youth group. I can eat a little interaction. Sorry. All right. Easter two weeks ago, right? I was here, I promise. Um, how many, how many of us sat in the pews and saw people walk in on Easter and go, can't believe they walked back in here. I haven't seen them in six months. I haven't seen them since pre-COVID. Yeah, they're just walking in here Easter Sunday like and they've been here all the time. How hurtful is that? What does that benefit the Lord's church? How does that benefit the Lord's body, the kingdom here at Buford, when we see people who maybe have made mistakes, who maybe have misprioritized their life and haven't been in these pews, who haven't been in this building for the past year, six months, four weeks, or however it may be, but when we finally see them, that's what's on our mind. Instead of, okay, I've got to make a, I've got to make a concentrated effort to make them feel extra loved and extra appreciated and more valuable at this moment than anyone else. 
Maybe a lot of us aren't guilty of shedding innocent blood, but I think, me included, are guilty of picking up a stone for someone who's just one step away from being innocent. Tonight, maybe that's you. Maybe you're one step away. Maybe there's been something in your life that's kept you from being in God's graces. It has kept you from being forgiven in the eyes of God. It has kept you from being accepted here. Whatever it may be, maybe there's something in your life that you recognize, this temptation, this hardship, whatever it may be that says, you know what, I've just felt like this has kept me away from God and I want to be made innocent tonight. I don't want to wake another hour. I don't want to wait another hour. I don't want to stay awake another night. I want today to be the moment where I am confidently innocent to everyone around me and especially to my Creator. Maybe that's you tonight, then let's talk about that. Maybe you've been made innocent and you've accepted God. You've, you've been washed in His blood through baptism. But you've made decisions that strayed you away. Maybe you feel isolated. Maybe you feel forgotten. Maybe you feel let down. Maybe you've let other people down. Maybe you've isolated other people. Tonight, if you have any reason, this congregation wants to be there for you. Our God wants to be there for you. We may not have many in here that shed innocent blood. And to them that have... God still loves you. He, hates, he has spoken about the act that He hates, but His love is bigger than that past decision, that current situation. And if you come to Him, James chapter 4, verse 8 says, if you draw to Him, He will draw near to you. But maybe you haven't shed innocent blood, but you've had a wrong mindset, and you've harbored hate. You've shed blood in a, more, in a, in a different way. If you need forgiveness, you need prayers of any form, I just ask you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.